on Milton Friedman's advice, there's no social purpose of business beyond profits, is yesterday's way of thinking. It's a lazy man's or lazy woman's way of thinking. And it's an idea that I think belongs on a scrap heap of history. That's the voice of John Wood, founder of Room to Read, one of the world's most successful education and gender equality nonprofits. He wasn't always in the business of building and filling libraries in the poorest parts of the world. For years prior, he served as a senior executive with Microsoft. Then came his great awakening. Rather than spoil it for you, I'll let John tell you what happened in the conversation you're about to hear. He's no stranger to success, a four-term member of the Clinton Global Initiative Advisory Board, a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and a book author. His latest, Purpose Incorporated, Turning Cause into Your Competitive Advantage. It's a user-friendly guide on how to steer an organization towards a world where purpose and profit coexist. John's backstory is powerful, but it's his thinking about the future that holds the greatest appeal. This is a story about possibilities, and at a time when the world is spinning from pandemics and economic displacement, John's words of encouragement and their practical application are well-received. John Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your earlier life, your life as a corporate, and why and when you left. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I was fortunate enough to join Microsoft in 1991. Uh, I was not pre-IPO, unfortunately. I was about two years after the IPO. And it was a time of very, very rapid growth for Microsoft throughout the 1990s. I think it was the uh, quite a bit of that time was the most highly capitalized uh, company in the world. Uh, good growth opportunities, good opportunities to learn. I felt very, very lucky to work there. But after, you know, seven or eight years, I started thinking that maybe there was life after Microsoft. And I went on a really reflective journey to Nepal in 1998, which I know sounds like a cliche, going to the Himalayas to find yourself. <laughs> I really went to the Himalayas mostly just to go trek the Annapurna circuit. I'm a big outdoor guy. I'm a marathon runner. And I heard about this amazing place called the Annapurna region where you could trek for 18 days in a row without seeing a car, a newspaper, or a working phone connection. And that, to me, sounded like a great idea. I was like, wow, you can actually get high enough in, Him in the Himalayas and escape the sound of Steve Ballmer yelling at you to work harder. So I went off to Nepal. On my second day of my trek, I met a headmaster who had a just absolutely dilapidated school, completely run down, 400 students showing up every day. He had a library that had no books, absolutely no children's books in his school library. And I asked him why. How could he be missing something so important? I, I grew up as a total library nerd. I loved to read as a kid. I still love to read today. And the headmaster said to me, well, in Nepal, we are too poor to afford education. But until we have education, we're going to always remain poor. Mm. And that really struck me as the topic sentence of poverty. It's, it's the lottery of life. It's where you are born and to whom you are born are the two most important factors of what your life is like as a young person. And here was this little village in Nepal with 400 kids who didn't have any books. And thankfully, the headmaster gave me a homework assignment. He said, perhaps, sir, you will someday come back with books. And we will build a library together. And I got excited. I'd made some money at a young age. I wanted to do something socially useful with the money. And so this little project, uh, I thought it was a little project. I thought it would be a little one-off project. But uh, it ended up getting way bigger than I ever could have expected. And what did happen? Where did you go from there? Well, I, I, as I trekked the next 16 days, I kind of wrote my pitch piece. I, I, I pulled out my journal every night, and I wrote the best, the most incredible pitch mail ever to tell people Send me your used copies of Dr. Seuss, Hop on Pop, Good Night Moon, whatever it might be. I went to a cyber cafe in Kathmandu at the end of my track, sent mail out to 100 friends around the world asking for book donations. 
And uh, we, we, because I listed my parents, I was living overseas, so I listed my parents' address in Colorado, uh, actually forgot to tell them I was doing that, and then they um, got inundated. We had 3,000 uh, books, just literally boxes upon boxes of books arriving every day from people, uh, many of whom had traveled in some of the poorer parts of the world and had seen the poverty, had wanted to figure out a way to help, but you know, you just can't just give money away, because that's not really scalable. And so a lot of people wrote me notes to say, this is great, you're doing this, education is the path out of poverty. Um, my father, who was 73 at the time and retired, volunteered to go with me to Nepal, and I originally kind of resisted that. I kind of wanted to travel travel light and travel fast, and then my dad convinced me I was being kind of a jerk, so I <laughs> reversed position and said, of course, Dad, you, you, you should come with me. And it was just the happiest trip of our lives, We just the two of us. A lot of time for reflection and bonding. We, we, we actually rented six donkeys, so we had 500 books per donkey. And we visited about five different schools to really share the books as widely as possible. And there's just nothing I think I could really have loved more in life. Uh, we're actually recording this on the third year anniversary of my, my father's death. Mm. Thankfully, he lived to be almost 91 years old. But as I look back on that and think about being with my father, and seeing these kids who had never seen brightly colored children's books before and being able to share that experience of watching these kids, you know, their smiles were as wide as the Zambezi River. Their, their eyes got as big as pizzas. They were so excited to be looking at bright, colorful children's books. And that was, I think for me, my game over moment. I realized that 3,000 books was simply, uh, you know, a drop in the ocean in a world where 770 million people are illiterate. And so it was in those early days of traveling with my father that the idea has become one of the world's most successful education initiatives called Room to Read. That's really where Room to Read was born. I thought, I can't do this as a one-off project. And then the question really came up, well, how can I, how can I exit Microsoft? Because there, obviously there's a big conflict coming up here. Which mm. is going to win? Mm. The whole idea of literacy and Room to Read or going back to Microsoft and just padding my bank account? How did you make that decision? What, how did you put it down? No, it was it was it was actually really gut wrenching because I had, you know, unvested stock options, and they had just promoted me to be um, to run business development for the Greater China region out of Beijing. So I was covering mainland Hong Kong, Taiwan. I knew I was going to let my boss down. Um, I knew I was going to let a lot of people down if I quit. Um, so it took me a while to really work up the courage, and I did a lot of writing, uh, a lot of thinking. I read some good books like First Things First by Stephen Covey. Uh, I was reading, reading the Dalai Lama's The Art of Happiness, and I think that the Dalai Lama's book really had a big impact on me because what he taught was that uh, acquiring wealth or acquiring status symbols is a no-win situation because you can mm. never win, mm. right? The rich man's never rich enough. You know, as Bruce Springsteen saying, uh, old man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, but a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. <laughs> Sorry, I probably butchered the Springsteen yeah. quote. Yeah, God bless um, Bruce. But... But I just realized that just sticking around Microsoft to make money or just to have the social status uh, was not worthy, that I needed to take a big leap. And so one day, I walked into my boss's office at 8.15 in the morning, and I said, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you, so here's the deal. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to leave for the day. I'll come back tomorrow, and then we'll talk. Mm. And he looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, I quit. Mm. And he said, what do you mean? I said, hey, no, 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 no. You know the rules. We're talking tomorrow. And I literally fled the building, went to my favorite tea shop, pulled out my journal, and wrote, holy shit, I did it, I'm out of here. 
I, I've got the rest of my life to go pursue my dream. Were you and that pre- dream for me was, was room to read. Were you predisposed towards something like this, or did you literally fall into it? In other words, walking in Nepal, you land into the situation, and it just dawns on you, this is a path for me. I, I mean, how, how ready were you for this experience? Not at all. It, mm. it found me. I didn't find it. I mm. was not seeking my next career, you know, wandering the Himalayas. I was simply looking for yeah. 18 days of, you know, just revivifying time in nature. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how the world works. Like, what if that headmaster had not been there that day? Or what if I'd chosen a different path? Or what if when he asked me to take a tour, I'd said, no, man, I'm busy. I got to make it to the next village before sunset. I mean, there's so many things that, that might not have happened. So it's absolutely amazing to me that the world conspired uh, in a way that that headmaster and I met Mm. And that he then insisted to me that he wasn't too proud to ask for help. He, he wanted to help his students, and I'm so glad that he was adamant. Perhaps, sir, you will someday come back with books. It was a very humble request, but I, I, what kind of a jerk would I have been if I said, no, I, I can't come back with books, I can't help you. And Tell your 400 kids there'll be one more generation to live in poverty. Yeah, I hear you. So, so what has it become? Tell us a little bit about Room to Read today. Well, Room to Read started with uh, very, very humble beginnings. I was very fortunate to find a, uh, a veteran of Unilever and Goldman Sachs, a brilliant woman named Erin Ganju, who, w- who was looking to do some things in Vietnam for education. We were introduced by a mutual friend uh, in San Francisco. And then Dinesh Shrestha, who is our Nepalese uh, co-founder. So the three of us came together and took this little thing, this little rickety organization that was delivering books in Nepal and providing some scholarships to girls, and said, so let's look, really professionalize it and let's scale it to the sky. So the whole idea behind Room to Read, we said our core values are very simple, six key words. World change starts with educated children. Uh, if you believe that and believe in that, then we're the organization, we're the charity for you. And our goal with Room to Read was to say we want to we do for the developing world what Andrew Carnegie did for the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. Mm. Carnegie, late in his life, established 2,500 libraries. And in one swift move, he set things up so that race, gender, and economic situation were, were no longer barriers to getting mm-hmm. knowledge, to being able to go and check books out of a library. I thought it was crazy that nobody had ever done for the developing world what Andrew Carnegie did in his day. Why not Carnegieize the whole idea of libraries for the poorest of the poor? Mm-hmm. So our initial goal was, let's just try to open 2,500 libraries in really poor places, post-Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, post-war Vietnam, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka. We picked some countries where we thought we could do some good, recruited local teams, and that was really important because we didn't want to be a bunch of expats running around the developing world telling the local people how to act or how to, how to run the business. We wanted to have strong Cambodians in Cambodia, strong Tanzanians in Tanzania. So 90% plus of our employees have been local national. They're close to the customer. They speak the local language. But it was very humble beginnings for us. Room to Read's first full year, 2000, I think we raised all of Mm. $35,000. Fast forward, though, by our sixth year, we were actually on the verge of hitting Carnegie's number, 2,500 libraries. By our 10th year, 2010, we had done 4X Carnegie. We were at 10,000 libraries. Um, Today, we're at 38,000 communities that have our, our literacy programs and our library program implemented. Um, we've impacted over 18 million students so far in 17 countries and grown way beyond my wildest dreams. To, to um, what, so it's been a great ride. To what do you attribute that success? What did you do differently, John? Because you would not have been the first to think about giving books to a school or setting up a library. 
Yeah, well, I think because so many of our team, early team members came from the private sector, we thought about scale from the very beginning. We said in a world of 773 million illiterate people, of whom two-thirds are girls and women, you have to have a scalable solution, right? Go big or go home. Mm. Go big or don't do this. So number one for us was we got to be really good at branding and be, be very clear as to who we are and what we stand for. Because a lot of times the charities, the charity world, it seems like a place where bad brands go to die. Mm. You know, you look at certain charity websites, you have no idea who are you, what do you do, why are you credible, why should I give you money? And so we were like really clear, like we are going to be, you know, the category killer, mm. you know, like mm. the Home Depot, the Walmart of developing world education. We're going to do a couple of things and do them well. We're going to do literacy at an early grade and gender equality so that girls are not left behind. Mm. We had very clear price points. We said if you, if you put in $5,000, we can open a library in a rural village. If you put in $300, a girl can go to school for a year through our Girl Scholarship or Long-Term Girls Education Program. Uh, and then we ran a really tight ship. We went to the Mark Benioffs of the world, and Mark gave us unlimited access to Salesforce free of charge. Mm-hmm. So we can keep our overhead low and tell our donors your money goes to where it need, it's needed. We had Goldman Sachs partners give us their frequent flyer miles so I could fly around the world for free. We got hotel partners, Rosewood, Swire, Hilton, and others to give us free room nights. And the reason we did that was to send a signal to our donors to say, we're going to sweat every dollar. So when you give us money, it goes to put books in the hands of a kid. It doesn't go to a big fancy headquarters. It doesn't go to a fleet of Land Rovers. It doesn't go to a first-class ticket on Emirates. We are sweating every dollar. And I'm very proud to say that Room to Read has consistently gotten um, the, the highest mark by Charity Navigator, four stars. Uh, we're in, amongst the elite 1% that have had 10 years of, of four-star ratings from them. So for-profit principles brought to a nonprofit world, you were able just to optimize what you were doing in a way that others just were unfamiliar with. Exactly. And it even comes to how we hire. Um, how do we do uh, performance measurement? How do we make sure we have KPIs? We're very fortunate that Melinda Gates, who had been my, my hiring manager at Microsoft, then became the underwriter of a research monitoring and evaluation program because she said to me, it's not enough to say you're doing good. You have to have the numbers and the data to prove you're doing good. And Melinda over lunch in Seattle in the early days said to me, the minute you have qualitative data that is as good as your quantitative data, e.g. you can prove that children are learning to read, you can prove that girls are graduating from secondary school because of your intervention, she said, then the smart money will find you. Mm. And, uh, you know, you just don't get much smarter than Melinda. She was exactly right. As soon as we had great qualitative data proving that our programs were working, it attracted a lot more um, funding. And I'm proud to say we've now raised over $600 million of philanthropic capital for Room to Read uh, from a a very, very, you know, uh, low standing start at 35000 the first year. You know, um, I know you've inspired more than a few executives to jump ship and uh, take up their own nonprofit or, or impact investment initiatives. Um, but in a recent book you've written, uh, you, you've actually said something quite interesting, which is, uh, how can you use your job to change the world? How can you use the current role, not the one you daydream about, to make a difference? Why are you advocating for people staying put instead of breaking out and doing the kinds of things you've done? Well, I don't think there's ever one right path for everybody, but what I think is different about today, if you look at 20 years ago when we started Room to Read, the world was very, very binary. The for-profit world was all about for-profit, was all about profits. The for-profit world was following Milton Friedman's idea that there's no social purpose of business beyond maximizing profits to shareholders. And so if you want to be a do-gooder, you kind of went and started an NGO or went to work for an existing charity. 
Hmm. If you stay, if you're in the corporate world, you're probably just doing corporate type things and making rich people richer. Look forward to 2010, 2015. You started to get in this era where companies after the global financial crisis realized they had to do more. They didn't do better for the world. They were going to lose customers. They were going to get punished by regulators. They're going to have unmotivated employees. You have this era of B Corps and these companies that are saying we're going to stand for something besides just profitability. Yes, we have to be profitable, else we go to business. But in addition, we're going to stand for something. So you had companies, for example, like Salesforce doing the pledge 1% model. They're saying we're going to give 1% of our stock to a foundation. We're going to give 1% of our license to nonprofits. And we're going to do well for ourselves and our shareholders while simultaneously doing good for the world. So the idea came about that companies could be more than just about profits. And I wrote the book, Purpose Incorporated, because I really wanted to send that message that of all the great companies and entrepreneurs I've been ha- having the pleasure of working with at Room to Read, who are finding a way to say, let's not look at purpose and profits as being diametrically opposed concepts. Let's find a way our company can embrace both simultaneously and build the next generation of great organizations. John, what's prompted this change among corporates? Why is there more talk about purpose now than there was 10 or 15 years ago? Because I think that relying on Milton Friedman's advice that there's no social purpose of business beyond profits is yesterday's way of thinking. It's a lazy man's or lazy woman's way of thinking, and it's an idea that I think belongs on a scrap heap of history. Mm. Why? Because number one, companies are only as good as the people they hire. And you cannot hire great people these days if all you can offer them is something that's is money, money, money. Because young people especially want to be involved in companies that they know are doing good for the world. Mm. Right? Who attracts the best engineers in the world right now? Elon Musk. Mm. Why? Because look at Tesla, look at SpaceX. They're very mission-driven companies. Right? If you hear the average auto executive speak, they're going to talk about market share, EPS, revenue growth, etc. You hear Elon Musk talk, he's talking about having a really cool car, zero emissions, we're not putting money into the hands of the petro-dictators in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia. You've got, literally at that point, people want to go work for that mission-driven person. People want to go work for Mark Benioff as opposed to Larry Ellison, because Benioff has entire track record as a, as a leader is one much more driven by being doing things that are good for society and good for the world. You get not just recruitment, though, it's also your talent retention, the motivation of your staff, how government regulators treat you, what customers say about you on social media. We live in a world of radical transparency right now. Mm. I think that that's a great opportunity for businesses to say, we can be smart enough to find a way to be profitable and to make money for our shareholders while still doing good things for the world and no longer viewing those things as being diametrically opposed concepts. Do, Do you feel that companies are confusing corporate social responsibility initiatives and purpose-driven agendas? I do. I I, I mean, no offense to anybody who's in a, 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 let's say, a CSR department. Uh, I know a lot of people who are in those, and they're good people. But even people in CSR departments will tell you that they're looking forward to the day when CSR is not a department in a company, Hmm. where it's not a silo, where it's not three people are in charge of it. What the world... I think a lot of people want to see their companies move towards is a place where the founders of that company are espousing that purpose is part of the DNA of the business. So if you look at one of the profiles in my Purpose Incorporated book, Nick Lai and his team at Hong Kong Broadband Network, their whole mission statement is making our Hong Kong a better place to live. Mm. That seems like kind of a weird thing for a telco, but they literally are like, look, if we delight our customers, 
and we make sure that the poor the poor people have broadband that's every bit as fast and as ubiquitous as rich people have, we can build a great business around that. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, the co-founders of Atlassian, the most successful tech company in the history of Australia, from the very beginning, they did pledge 1%. Um, they built things in where if you downloaded the starter license, you couldn't have it for free because they thought that free sends a message they don't value their software. They said you can download some starter licenses for 10 of our apps, but you have to pay $10, and all $10 goes to Room to Read. Mm. And they raised several million dollars for us in that way. But while doing it, guess what? They also had good word of mouth. They brought in new customers. Those customers loved the apps and then ended up buying additional products on top of it. So I really enjoyed writing the book or co-authoring the book with Amalia McGibbon, my, my co-author. I really enjoyed co-authoring the book with her because we were able to go out and talk to so many people I'd met along the way who were living the example. It wasn't just that they had this theory that business could be a force for good. We've all heard more than enough empty words and bromides and you know statements where you're like, yeah, 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 great, but how are you doing it? Mm. What exactly are you doing? How do you measure it? How do you know it works? We really want to make sure that this book was full of examples of people who are actually doing it and using purpose as a competitive advantage. Yeah, and, and I picked up in your book some of these examples which seemed they were just cutting a fine line between what was a CSR initiative or a philanthropic initiative versus what was really kind of foundation, purpose-driven agendas, which were really kind of ripping right through the organization and looking at everything they did from the carbon footprint to how they treated their customers to how they engaged with their employees. Um, is it really a logical stepping stone to start with a CSR and hope that it builds and blossoms throughout the organization? Or is it a fundamentally a different approach when you're looking at deploying purpose-driven agendas into an organization? I think the more that it can either A, come from the top, or B, from the founding team, mm. or, or C, both of the above, the more likely it is to be successful. Mm -hmm. I have seen big companies, there's often, I think, an idea that, that entrepreneurs can pull this off but the bigger companies have, have less chance of pulling it off. And what I advise people to do is follow the example I saw at Citibank. Um, Citibank, about eight years ago, had a group of people, and I was one day contacted by somebody I'd met uh, named Karen Leventhal. And Karen worked in the foreign exchange desk uh, or department of Citibank. And they had said, look, we want to do something charitable. What we want to do is we want to tell people, tell our customers, we're trying to drive you from doing all your transactions over the phone to doing all your transactions electronically on what's called our Velocity platform. So we'll give you an incentive. For one month, every time you do a trade on our Velocity platform for foreign exchange, we will donate $1 of every million dollars traded to a basket of six education charities, including Room to Read. Mm. It seemed like a small number, but of course, when you're doing FX, FX transactions, these are in the hundreds of millions of billions of dollars. They raised several million dollars for education charities just the first year doing this just on a couple of their, their platforms. What happened was, as they talked about it within the bank, different leaders in the bank said, well, we have our own platforms for trading, equities, debt, et cetera. Let's layer that in. So Citibank every year now with E for Education, it is the happiest time of year, I think, for a lot of the people on the trading floor because mm -hmm. for four to six weeks, every single time a trade goes through, that trade is producing money for education charities like Room to Read. To date, they've now raised over 30 million U.S. dollars for, the, for their charity partners, and this started out as just a little skunkworks project with a couple of employees promoting it, but every year now it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, and I, I think for the people on the trading floor, it motivates them, knowing that it's the holiday season, and guess what? Every time you do a trade, 
money goes to help kids who are in need. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, from, you know, that feel-good moment when you're doing something or giving something and it's seasonal or it's not, um, has been a part of the fabric of being in a corporation for years. But but again, you know, why then write a book, Purpose Incorporated, which really, you could have written a book about how to be philanthropic, you know, within your organization or how to give a percentage of what you do to a charity. That's not what you're saying, though. That's not the ultimate message you're trying to drive home, is my impression. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. It's a good observation you've made. And I think really it's just because I've, I've had to evolve. Right? We all have to evolve as the times evolve. So in 2006, I wrote a book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. And I was very fortunate to get on Oprah and, and Bill Clinton endorsed the book. So it did really, really well. And that book was really, you know, my nailing the proclamation of the church door to say, quit your job, go be a do-gooder, um, you know, follow this example, get involved with Room to Read. That was 2006. At the time, there really was not a lot of opportunity to be within a bigger company or a startup and say, I want to come to work every day and know that I'm making the world a better place. Mm. In this day and age, I think we're at the point where we haven't yet hit hit critical mass, but more and more people every day, I think, are realizing, and, and this is only going to be accelerated in my mind by the COVID crisis, by Black Lives Matter, that business has to step up. Business leaders really need to step up and say, we're going to help the government's we're going to help the NGOs to solve these problems because businesses often have the brand muscle, the money, the leadership talent, the platform to actually be able to go out and do good in the world. And they're finding more and more now that it's, it's a win-win-win. You've got better companies. You make the world a better place. But you also, you as a human being are much more motivated. When you go home and, you, and your kids say to you, Daddy, what, Mommy, what did you do today? If you tell them about your EPS presentation, you know, your kids don't care. Mm. If you say mom and dad are doing something at their company to help bring clean water to a village in Ethiopia or to bring a school or a library to a village in Tanzania, ah, that's that just makes you so much happier and more fulfilled as a human being. Yeah. John, has this train left the station? In other words, even in a time of COVID with so much economic uncertainty, uh, you know, job uncertainty, uh, do you suspect that uh, purpose-driven uh, plans will continue apace? Or do you think this people will pull back just because time resource isn't available? What are your thoughts on that? I, I, look, I think some, some leaders will naturally be timid and we'll use these crises as an excuse to pull back, at least in the short term. But I think that truly visionary leaders are the, are the ones who will double down. Mm. Um, that'll say, this, the, the, these crises just show us more than ever how much we need business leaders to be a, a force for good in the world. Mm. And I think part of that is driven by their, their realization that if you really want to build a great company. So I'll give you a quick, a quick quote, I think, that sums it up. Um, Mike Musselum, who is the CEO of Edwards Life Sciences, the largest producer of heart valves in the world. Edwards is a wonderfully purpose-driven organization, right? Every time that they sell a heart valve, it's a chance for somebody to live longer, to spend time with their family and their grandchildren, to, to grow old gracefully in a healthy manner. When I interviewed Mike for the book, he said, having purpose does not guarantee you have a great company, because there's a lot of other stuff you still have to do well. He said, but lack of purpose will guarantee lack of greatness. Hmm. Mm. Lack of purpose guarantees lack of greatness. You know, the other thing that I noticed in your book was you did have access to a lot of global companies and uh, CMOs, CEOs had discussions uh, to understand where they were coming from and how far they had yet to go. There were a few examples of Asia-based organizations. Why aren't there more? Um, 
I think Asia's, I mean, I've lived and worked in Asia for 25 plus years, so I, I, I do have a lot of experience here in the region. I know you do too. We both love living in Asia and feel like it's a great uh, place for us to be, be living our lives and doing business. I think Asia is going to slow, to start catching up. Uh, if I look, for example, at companies that I'm involved in, Green Monday Holdings here in Hong Kong, the, the group that invented Omnipork, which is like the beyond beef of pork, uh, who run a series of vegan restaurants called Kind Kitchen, where their food actually tastes really good. It's gotten me to move more towards a plant-based diet. Um, a, a web, uh, sorry, an app, an app company in Singapore called The Billion Veg, where their founder, Vikas Garg, former, former Credit Suisse banker and CalPERS bank, uh, employee, Vikas decided to start a business that was basically almost like Instagram for vegans. So if you go to a great restaurant and you eat a vegan dish, photograph it, geotag it, rate it, and every time you do a, you do a rating or a ranking on the Billion Veg site, they will donate $1 to an animal rescue charity to thank you. Mm. And you get to help choose a charity. So it's connecting what you eat on the plate and the decisions you make with what happens in the animal world. Mm. So if you look at a billion veg, if you look at Green Monday Holdings, if you look at Hong Kong Broadband Network, HKBN, uh, there's so many companies that are growing up now in Asia who are realizing that if they put purpose into the very DNA of the company, it's really going to help them with customers, with winning the war for talent, with motivating their employees. So I'm very bullish on purpose uh, within Asia itself. And, and it does feel like around the world, whether you want to become a certified B Corp or you really are uh, building a team that uh, wants to be inspired and motivated every day by a purpose agenda, that startup or early stage is a good way to begin. But it also does raise the question about all of the uh, industry that's occurring now based on the uh, operations, the ownership of large Asian conglomerates. Where and why uh, or why aren't they getting involved? And do you have any thoughts on how they could get started? Certainly. I, I hate to ever generalize or paint with a broad brush, but I think with a lot of the conglomerates, it, it, there's not enough control being given yet to the next generation. Mm. And if you talk to... Um, a lot of the younger generation, they really want to help move their family companies in that direction. But oftentimes there's resistance from the previous generation. So that's a that's something that will obviously change over time. We got we got, you know, we got time on our side in that sense that the, the, the new generation is going to take over. If you look at all the wealth reports put out by the private banks um, and you look at the, the, the younger generation being willing to accept a lower ROI, on an investment if they know that that investment is in a socially responsible company. Hmm. Now, oftentimes the ROI is higher in the socially responsible company. Oftentimes it's not a trade-off. But people, yeah. I think the younger generation, are definitely much more willing to take those risks yeah. with how they invest their capital, how they invest their time, and whether or not the company has purpose at its heart. So we work closely, for example, with Rosewood Hotels here in Hong Kong. Wonderful global brand, uh, incredible leadership under Sonia Cheng, she and I met four years ago after being introduced by our mutual friend, Jancis Robinson, the wine writer. She said, how can Rosewood Hotels help Room to Read? And I said, well, I've got six ideas for you. So I told her all six ideas, and she said, okay. And I said, what do you mean? Which one do you want to do? And she said, I'll do all six. Mm, mm. And she's like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. I wish all my meetings yeah, so were like this. But she literally said, I'll give you auction prizes for your galas. We'll donate room nights so as you travel around the world, you're not having to spend your donors' money on rooms. We'll host events for you for our network. We'll raise money via in-hotel promotions where if someone orders a pizza, 
Let's say, for example, at our beautiful resort in Italy, every pizza will donate one euro to Room to Read, and we'll do these micro-fundraising events. Another significant example of a younger generation of leader within a company, within a family company, who's saying, I really want to come to work every day and know that I can motivate our employees and motivate myself by saying we are doing good for the world. It sounds like just planting seeds, planting ideas, getting people started. I mean, just showing and demonstrating that it's not such a tax on the system. And in fact, uh, this idea, this notion of that you don't have to necessarily sacrifice profit for purpose, uh, those are two ideas whose time have come. Exactly. And I'll just give you a quick uh, anecdote. When I get a lot of invitations to speak in various places around the world. And what I usually do is when I get people on the phone, I say, why? Tell me why you want me to come speak. And the, the number one answer is almost always because we know the world's moving in this direction towards purpose-driven companies. We want to move in that direction. We just don't know how. There's not enough examples. There's not enough ideas of exactly who did it, who went before us, how did they do it, how did they measure it. And so I speak a lot about that. I've spoken at Netflix, at Facebook, at Google, where I've gone in and, and, and said, here's what I see other companies doing. And, and a lot of times there's that aha moment of, oh, great, we can borrow their idea, modify it for our unique customer set or our unique product offering, and bingo, you can roll something out the next week if you want to where your customers are saying, wow, this company is actually helping to solve some of these problems, and they're part, they're part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. John, your work is an inspiration. Uh, on behalf of everyone out there, I thank you for what you do. Thank you. Well, I'm very lucky. Room to Read's got a phenomenal team. Um, they, they make all of us who were there in the beginning look good. And if people want to learn more, can I, can I throw out just my, a couple of URLs really quick? Absolutely, please. Uh, so the book is Purpose Incorporated. Um, it's available on Amazon and iBooks and a bunch of other places. Um, the website for Room to Read is www.roomtoread.org. And my personal website, uh, including my speaking gigs, is at www.johnjwood.com. Johnjwood.com also has my annual list of the top 10 books of the year, every year going back to 2014. So if people are looking for book recommendations, I'm a huge reader. Uh, go to johnjwood.com and you'll have all my recommendations of the best 50 books I've read in the last five years. And, and we will include those links in the Inside Asia newsletter. We thank you for those. Okay, great. Well, thanks for the interview, and I hope you have a great weekend ahead. Same to you, Joe. That was my conversation with John Wood, founder of the nonprofit Room to Read and author of Purpose Incorporated, Turning Cause into Your Competitive Advantage. The subtitle of the book strikes some as a tall order, but as evidence mounts, we discover that doing good is just good business. Our conversation raised some new possibilities. He mentions at one point that compared to 20 years ago when he left Microsoft to build a nonprofit, a clear line was drawn between the worlds of profit and nonprofit. No more, he insists. Increasingly, business leaders are waking up to the idea that the world is in crisis, and unless corporations step up to do something about it, the marketplace will prove punishing. In this era of quarterly results at all costs, taking the long view has become increasingly challenging, particularly for CEOs of publicly listed companies. Shareholders have had their way with organizations, but there's pushback, and it's coming from all quarters. Increasingly, customers are privy to corporate behavior and opting to buy ethically or not buy at all. 
Supply chains are global and suppliers are tired of price gouging. They want to be partners and are prepared to step up in new and sustainable ways. And let's not forget employees. As John points out, the best and brightest are beginning to select employers based on something more than how much they get paid. Culture, ethical behavior, gender equality, and sustainability are the new selection criteria for millennials who have different ideas about the future of work. For a guy who assembled a few crates of books for a Nepalese school in the late 1990s to build a $600 million nonprofit showcase, John sees opportunities for success everywhere he looks. And the new opportunity, he believes, is for corporations to embed purpose in everything they do. We need business leaders to be forces for good in the world, he says. Truer words have never been spoken. That's it for this week's episode. We thank you for tuning in. What's your organization doing to lead a greater purpose-driven agenda? Let us know. Share your stories by leaving a message on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. If you're not already a regular listener, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.